Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 15? I'm excited about what I have to share this morning. I think the Lord is going to speak to us through his word. I want to read for us verses 20 through 28. I would encourage you sometime, though, to read this whole chapter. It is a fundamentally important chapter in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read verses 20 through 28. We're jumping right into the middle of an argument, so you follow along with me. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed. By the way, that's a reference to Psalm 110, one of the most important psalms that's quoted in the New Testament over and over again. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says, Psalm 110, that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. In the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts of the life and death of Jesus surprised me when I first realized it, and it surprises me still. No one ever uses the word resurrection to describe Jesus' return from death. Neither the gospel writers nor the people whose words and actions they report. They talk about how Jesus rose from the dead, but they never use the one word you would expect them to use, resurrection. It's almost as if they're avoiding it. That ought to raise a question in our minds, certainly raised one in my mind. Why didn't they use the word resurrection? The answer to that question, I think, comes in two parts, the first of which is very straightforward. The gospel writers did not use the word resurrection because the men and women in the story they were narrating didn't use the word. The fact that the writers refrained from using a word that was immensely important in the vocabulary of the early church speaks volumes about their intention to faithfully represent what really happened. Some modern scholars, many modern scholars, think that everything theological in the Gospels and by that I mean everything that points to the deity of Jesus and his status as the Messiah, was concocted years later by the church and written into the Gospels in an act of historical revisionism. Those scholars believe that the healing miracles, the transfiguration, especially the resurrection, didn't really happen. They think the church later invented those things as a way of elevating Jesus' status and validating their faith. But here we have the most important thing that ever happened, the climax of all four Gospels and the central component of the Christian faith, and none of the writers even once 
give in to the temptation to describe it as resurrection. That's an overlooked and remarkably important evidence for biblical authenticity. That brings us to the second part of the question. Why didn't the people in the story, now I'm not talking about the writers themselves, but the people in the story, Peter, John, the apostles, the women disciples, why didn't they refer to Jesus' return from the dead as resurrection? The resurrection was one of the core doctrines held by most first century Jews, one to which most people deeply resonated. So why didn't Jesus' apostles, the women disciples, or even after the fact, the frightened chief priests ever use that word? I think the answer is once again straightforward. In the immediate aftermath of Jesus' return from death, the disciples hadn't yet grasped the enormity of what had just happened. The gospel writers tell us about an empty tomb, but they don't expound a doctrine of the resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead in body. All the evidence is that they did believe it. It doesn't mean that they thought Jesus continued to exist in spirit or as a life force or as a powerful memory as people do when they point to their hearts and say of a dead spouse, he's still with me and always will be right here. That's not what they were thinking. The disciples believed that Jesus died, that he was stone cold dead, dead as a doornail, dead and buried. And they believed that after three days he came back to life, that he was alive again, walking, talking, eating, drinking, laughing, real. But here's the thing. During those first days, they didn't yet realize that this meant Jesus had been resurrected. If that sounds like a contradiction to you, let me assure you it's not. The disciples, you'll remember, had seen three people that we know of raised back to life after they died. The daughter of Jairus, the young man living and then dying in the village of Nain, and most spectacularly, their friend Lazarus. These people had been dead, stone cold dead, dead as a doornail dead. And yet Jesus had somehow brought them back to life. But the disciples didn't therefore think that any of those people had been resurrected. That idea would never have occurred to them. When they later heard that Jesus was alive and they saw him for themselves, after having seen him horribly killed, they believed that their master had risen, and they were overjoyed by that, but they still didn't realize that he'd been resurrected. In their minds, the resurrection was an entirely different thing. You see, most Jews, with a notable exception of the ruling class, the Sadducees, believed in resurrection, but it never occurred to them that resurrection was something that could happen to a single individual. Resurrection was what happened to everyone, to the world, and it was scheduled to happen on the last day. It was the inaugurating event of the age to come. Resurrection would only happen when God set the world right. So even though Jesus rose from the dead and his friends knew it, they didn't immediately think of that as a resurrection. 
In their minds, when the resurrection happened, everyone who had ever died would be raised from the dead, the righteous to eternal life, the unrighteous to eternal death. For the disciples, it took time and instruction, most importantly from Jesus himself, for the enormity of what had happened in that garden tomb to sink in. Jesus had not only come back to life after being dead, as remarkable as that was, death had been defeated, and the resurrection, the coming to life of everyone who had ever died, had begun. Now, by the time we come to the early chapters of Acts, the followers of Messiah Jesus are using that word resurrection right and left. Over the 40-day period following the Passion, the disciples met with Jesus, and he explained to them from the Scriptures what had happened and what it meant. In Luke's words, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. So by the time the events in Acts take place, now Acts begins just a month and a half later, but in those first months and couple of years, we find the disciples proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In Jesus, they now understand the resurrection of the dead has commenced. So, understand, after being instructed by Jesus himself and guided by the Holy Spirit, the earliest followers of Jesus had come to understand that more was happening when Jesus came back to life than they'd first realized. They now understood that the resurrection, the coming back to life of everyone who had ever died, had begun. The new age for which they had waited had dawned and the renewal of all things, to use Jesus' own words, was underway. The celebration of Easter in churches around the country often focus on the fact that men, women, and children with faith in Jesus will continue to live after they die, that the grave does not have the last word. Often that's what we celebrate. But as true as that is, it's important to realize that most people in first century Israel and everywhere else believed that before Jesus rose from the dead. They believed that people continue to live in some form, depending where you are, as ghosts or as spirits or some amalgamation of life forces. They believed that they continue to live after they died. The resurrection of Jesus signified something more radical and far-reaching than that. The man who most thoroughly explained the implication of Jesus' rising was the Apostle Paul. When he first heard that Jesus was alive, he totally disbelieved it. Totally. People don't come back after being dead for three days. We think first century people were gullible and that they would believe anything. Because, oh, people back then, they believed all kinds of stuff. That's absolute nonsense. They were no more likely to believe that a man three days dead would return to life than we are. Paul was certain at first that it was a hoax. But then he saw the resurrected Jesus for himself, and that changed everything. 
From that time on, Paul could not stop talking and writing about the resurrection. Did you know that in the scriptures, Paul uses the noun resurrection approximately four times more often than he uses the noun forgiveness? And as far as the verbs related to resurrection and forgiveness are concerned, he uses resurrection verbs even more frequently than that. The resurrection was of the utmost importance to Paul. As far as he was concerned, there is no faith in Jesus apart from belief in the resurrection. Paul's most comprehensive explanation of resurrection comes in the the chapter we just read, 1 Corinthians 15. The entire letter to the Corinthians is written around the idea or in front of a backdrop that God is restoring all things and the resurrection is central to that plan. When I say resurrection, I am referring to the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of all the rest of us. In Paul's mind and in the mind of all the early Christians, the two cannot be separated His resurrection is the guarantee of ours, and ours is the outcome and achievement of his. And yet some people, they can't be separated, and yet some people in Corinth were doing just that. Educated in philosophical Platonism, they were absolutely certain that thoughtful, sophisticated people did not believe in resurrection. And they brought that mindset into the church, into their Christian life. Yes, they believed God had raised Jesus from the dead, but they denied that any of the rest of us would be raised. They believed that after death, we would live as disembodied spirits in some kind of eternal heavenly bliss. The idea of the spirit once again being united to a body was repugnant to them. Now, look at 1 Corinthians 15. The central question in this passage is found in verse 12. I didn't read verse 12 to you before. Let me read it now. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? These educated Corinthians saw no contradiction between, on the one hand, affirming that Christ had risen from the dead, while on the other hand, denying that that stupendous miracle had anything to do with resurrection. In this chapter, Paul starts with the question, just as a really brief overview, of whether the dead are raised. Then he moves to the question of when the dead are raised, and finally to the question of how the dead are raised. It's brilliantly organized, and it's richly insightful. That said, we'll not look at all of it, but only at the relationship between the miracle of Christ's rising, which we celebrated on Easter and celebrate every week, and our own resurrection. Now remember that some of the Corinthians denied that there is a relationship between the two. Paul insists that there is. He is careful not to talk about Christ's resurrection and our resurrection as if they were two different things. Jesus' resurrection is a part of the resurrection, or it might be more accurate to say that the resurrection flows out of Jesus' resurrection. The two are not and cannot be isolated from each other. One resurrection, two phases. The first phase has already happened. 
Christ, uh, Christ was not merely raised. He was the beginning of the resurrection, the first stone in an avalanche. Why does Paul make such a fuss about this? Because he understood that the resurrection is more, it's, it's more than a spirit being united to a body after death. That is a far too individualistic way of looking at it for Paul. Resurrection is the pivotal event in God's plan to make, Revelation 21 verse 4, all things new. It's the critical phase in the restoration. Resurrection inaugurates the new age. It's the, it inaugurates the great renewal, the glories of the kingdom of God. Resurrection is the threshold into the age to come. Now, most Jews already believed that. What they didn't realize was that resurrection had already begun in Jesus. That was the Christian's stupendously good news. It was not just that people go on living after they die. Everyone believed that already. It was that the new age, the age of God's kingdom and the renewal of all things had already kicked off when Jesus rose from the dead. That's why Paul in verse 20 calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, who've died. In the first century, every Jew understood the language of first fruits. Each year, at the very beginning of the wheat harvest, in the beginning of the Old Testament, it included the barley harvest. But by New Testament times, each year at the beginning of the wheat harvest, the Israelites sent the first ripe grain as an offering to the Lord's temple. Seven weeks later, they went to Jerusalem to celebrate the completed harvest at the Feast of Pentecost. The first fruits was the promise, see, that more was to follow. Jesus' resurrection was the promise that more is going to follow, a veritable harvest of those ripe for resurrection. As I said earlier, behind this whole passage is the idea that God is restoring creation. Creation looms large in the background of this whole letter, but in this passage particularly. Throughout this chapter, allusions to the first creation, recounted in Genesis 1 and 2, abound, and that is intentional. There are seeds and plants, just like Genesis chapter 1. There are men and animals, uh, birds and fish. There's the sun, the moon, the stars, and if we still don't get it, Adam himself comes into the picture. Paul is thinking about creation and recreation. The first creation floundered upon Adam's rebellion and is dying. The renewed creation was established on Jesus' obedience and is ready to rise. Look at verses 21 and 22. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But, verse 23, each in his own turn. Here is where the Jesus followers' understanding of resurrection added to the ancient Jewish understanding. Added to it, didn't change it, 
Paul's view is still thoroughly Jewish, but it added to it. It clarified it. And the additional insight was this. There is an order to the resurrection. It comes in turns. That's the thing that Paul and his colleagues had not previously understood. When he did, it changed everything, and it should change everything for us as well. Christ's resurrection was not simply proof that people continue to live in some form after they die. It was not just proof that death had been defeated, though it was certainly that. It was proof that the new age had dawned, that the ancient promises made by God of a kingdom and of the restoration and renewal of all things were being fulfilled. It was proof that his disciples, as Chesterton once put it, it was proof to his disciples that the world had died in the night and that what they were looking at was the first day of the new creation. Judaism regarded all of time as divided into two ages, the present age and the age to come. The present age had suffered violence. It was a time of injustice and conflict. Paul referred to it as the present evil age. Satan is called the God of this age. The present age is a time of progressive corruption from which people need to be rescued. But the age to come will be the time of God's undisputed rule. It's characterized by peace and justice. It's the age of plenty, of prosperity, of joy and reconciliation. For a picture of it, read Revelation 21 and 22. Or go back and start at Isaiah 60 and read through the end of the the prophet Isaiah. The line between this present age and the age to come is everyone knew was the resurrection. The age to come would bring about the end of all dominion, authority, and power that stood opposed to God. That's what Paul's saying in verse 24. What's more, verse 26, it would mark the defeat, the end of death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That, of course, is the basis for John Donne's wonderful taunt of death. Death, thou shalt die. Now, as I said, everyone knew that the line between the present age and the age to come was the resurrection. But Paul is telling us that the resurrection has already begun. Don't ever forget that. This is the most startling claim in the New Testament. The resurrection began on a spring morning somewhere around 30 A.D., give or take a few years, in a Jerusalem garden when Jesus came out of the tomb. And it will conclude when he comes back from heaven. But if that's true, what happens to the age to come? That is a profoundly important question, one you can be sure the apostle considered deeply. Paul believed and taught that the age to come had already dawned and that everyone who confesses Jesus as Lord is part of the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, what did he say? He is a new creation. The new age had arrived, but the old age would not be terminated until the conclusion of the resurrection at the royal appearing. The word the Greeks use is parousia. 
at the royal appearing of the Messiah, Jesus. We live in the overlap period between the coming of the new age and the end of the old one. And we often celebrate resurrection resurrection as proof that life is going to go on when we die. But Paul celebrated resurrection as proof that God's kingdom has come to earth while we live. The new age has dawned, or to be more precise, it is dawning. Sometimes we hear people ask the question, what would you do if you knew that you're going to die tomorrow? I think Paul would more likely have asked, what would you do if you knew that you're going to live tomorrow, live fully in God's kingdom? In the overlap time, we still have the sorrow, sins, and corruption of the present age. In some ways, they're worse than they've ever been but we can already tap into the joy and peace and freedom of the age to come. We can feel the winds of that age blowing across the borders, and we can lean into them. We can know the power of the resurrection, the remarkable power to live the future in the present. It's in this overlap period this resurrection time that we can put off the old self, which, like the present evil age, is being corrupted by its evil desires. It's during this time that we learn to live, Romans 6, 4, in the newness of life. There are battles to be fought and won in this time, but thanks be to God, this is verse 57 of 1 Corinthians 15, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, we're already there. There's a way of life to be learned. That, as a pastor, is one of the most frustrating things to me. Most people never realize there's a way of life to be learned. There's a new way of living to be learned. There's work to be done. So Paul says in the last verse of this chapter, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain because of the things he's just been saying. If you've thought all the resurrection means is that we get to go on living after we're gone, you're somewhat misinformed. It means that we can start living while we're here as we draw on the resources of the age to come. Most people live their whole lives solely out of the past. For good or ill, they are molded and sometimes they are shackled by their former experiences. But those with faith in Jesus can learn to live out of the future. They can tap into the age to come. And so they live in hope. They are formed by the future in ways that people who are shaped only by the past can't even imagine. They live, as Paul once said, in the power of the resurrection. And that sets them free to become all that God intends them to be. If you want that kind of life, a future-oriented, God-empowered, old habit-breaking life, there is one place to find it. In a faith connection to the resurrected one, to Jesus. If you have that faith connection to the living one, that kind of life is already available to you. Learn to live it.
Let's pray. God, what you want to say to us, don't stop saying right now, but keep speaking it into our hearts and minds, please, by your spirit. Give us a hope, a vision of what can be through the power of the resurrection. And I ask this in the good, sweet name, the name we love. The name of Jesus. Amen.